when I was a child, and it rained an awful lot. It's probably quite in keeping with this morning. Visitors to Northern Ireland tell me that it always rains an awful lot um, where I grew up, but that was what we were stuck with. So instead of going outside a lot of the time, I would settle down in front of the television and see what the bank holiday television schedules had to offer me. And often what they offered was a bank holiday movie. And often that movie would be a swords and sandals epic based on Greek mythology. So I remember watching films like Jason and the Argonauts or Clash of the Titans and really enjoying them. Um, There were always lots of ageing English Shakespearean actors in them who were playing the gods of Mount Olympus. There was usually a young American actor who was playing the hero. And then there were lots of special effects of skeletons and gorgons and sea gods that as a child I thought were really amazing. I sort of watched them now and they're a little bit tinky. But, but those films were my introduction to Greek mythology, and I loved watching them. And there were always lots of sea journeys in any one of those films. And a recurrent threat to sailors in Greek mythology were the sirens. Now, the sirens were sea nymphs, um, whose singing was so beautiful, it would lure any sailor who heard it closer and closer to them until their boats were dashed on the rocks and the sailors drowned. See, the sirens in Greek myth were, were enticing and attractive, but they were also deadly. And in various stories, sailors and heroes tried to overcome the, the attraction of the sirens and so avoid meeting their death because of them. And one such hero was Odysseus. And he knew he was about to sail near the sirens. And his method of dealing with their threats was, hopefully you can see it on this Grecian urn, was to block up the ears of all his sailors with wax so they couldn't hear the music of the sirens and then to tie himself to the central mast of the ship so that even when he wanted to steer the ship closer to this beautiful music, he couldn't. See, Odysseus reasoned that, that the sirens' music was so powerful, so beautiful, the only thing he could do was cover the ears of his sailors and tie himself to the mast. And to be fair to Odysseus, that worked. They got through the threat of the sirens. But another Greek hero who faced the sirens was a man called Jason, who was famous for his Argonauts, I mentioned earlier. But Jason had a very different tactic to dealing with the threat of the sirens. Because Jason had the great musician Orpheus on board his ship. And so when Jason's ship neared the sirens, Jason asked Orpheus to play his harp. And Orpheus's playing was so beautiful, according to the myth, that the singing of the sirens was shown to be dull and lifeless by comparison. Jason's sailors were no longer attracted to the sirens because they had heard a better music played by Orpheus. See, those are two ways of dealing with the sirens, according to Greek myth. You either block up your ears to their singing, like Odysseus, or you play a different, better music that will captivate you instead of the sirens. Why do I talk about Greek myth this morning? Well, when it comes to helping Christians overcome the attractiveness of the world around us, the Apostle Paul is with Jason in that analogy. Paul was convinced 
that Christians only need to hear the better music of Jesus Christ, of his grace and his glory contained in the gospel, so they will no longer be attracted to anything or anyone else. If we hear that music, Paul thinks, then the music of the world will fade into dull lifelessness. It's a music that at first seems so attractive, but that only offers us death and emptiness. And Paul says, there is a better music for us to listen to. And that music is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, Paul turns directly to urging the Philippian Christians to rejoice in the Lord, verse 1. Again, in previous weeks, we've seen many of Paul's insights into what it means to have joy in the Christian life in the face of suffering. Again, insights he arrived at during a sustained time in prison in Rome. But here in chapter 3, and right throughout the end of the letter, Paul challenges his readers directly. You can rejoice in the Lord no matter what your outward circumstances or inward struggles. Because for Paul, rejoicing in knowing Jesus Christ was never an optional extra for a Christian, just something you did on a good day. So for Paul, joy in the Lord Jesus is vital to our Christianity. It's not the icing on the cake, it is actually a vital part of the cake itself. You see, we need to rejoice in the Lord. Otherwise, Paul is convinced we will not endure as followers of Jesus. We'll be at the mercy of anything or anyone else who seems to offer us joy, the joy we long for, only to find too late that we've shipwrecked our lives on the rocks of this world. So next week in chapter 4 we're going to look at how we can fight for joy in the Lord in a broken and fallen world. But this week Paul's focus is he wants us to recognise why we can find joy in Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he has given to those who trust in him. Basically, Paul wants to hear a better music in the gospel. Because only then we'll be protected from the music around us. So let me just read verse 1 for us here. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, And it is a safeguard to you. See, Paul describes joy in the Lord as as a safeguard for them, as a protection for the Philippian Christians. Because according to Paul, if we're not rejoicing in the Lord Jesus, then we will find something or someone else to find joy in. In verse 2 and following, Paul describes what it was that he worshipped before meeting Christ. But, but he assures the Philippians here, we all need this safeguard of rejoicing in knowing Christ. You see, according to the Bible, we are all created, every man, woman and child, to worship. We're created to worship the living God and to find our joy in him. In the church, Father Augustine puts it like this in his confessions. He says to God, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no rest until they rest in you. We were created to worship, the Bible tells us. But after the fall, 
and the arrival of sin into the world, our God-given need to worship has been distorted or perverted. And instead of worshipping God, we now worship other things, other people. And we convince ourselves that we can find joy and satisfaction in them. To paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, when someone stops worshipping God, they don't worship nothing, they worship anything. So instead of finding our joy in the Lord, we look to find our joy in other people, in a loved one, in a spouse or or a relationship, in, in our children or our parents, in a friendship. We look to find our joy in financial security, in job satisfaction, in either an active and exciting life or maybe a quiet, contemplative life. But Paul's saying none of these things can actually give us joy. None of these people are worthy of our worship. Our hearts weren't created to find rest in them. They were created to find rest in God. And Paul's convinced that only in knowing Jesus can we have that rest with the living God. Rejoice in the Lord. It is a safeguard for you, Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord and you'll be protected from worshipping other false gods. Because worshipping anything else just is disastrous for us. Again, if we worship our spouse or our family or our friends or our job, that will just drain us and damage them. Because they're not good enough. They're not gracious enough. They're not holy enough to deserve our worship. None of those things are God. So Paul says, rejoice in Jesus, because rejoicing in him will lead you to the God who created you and in whom you can find rest for your hearts. Paul is certain there is no one else in all creation worthy of our worship and able to give us joy. You might think after verse 1, that is a pretty bold claim Paul is making. How can Paul be so certain of that? What authority does he have to make that claim? To command Christians to rejoice in the Lord and in him alone. Well, in verse 2, Paul turns to his own credentials. And, and he's frank with his readers. He says, I tell you to rejoice in the Lord because I myself spent so much of my life trying to find joy in other things. See, Paul learnt this lesson the hard way. And he wants his readers to know about it. He spent a long time, a long way away from Jesus. See, Paul says, if you don't rejoice in the Lord, you will rejoice in something else. And for me, he says, that something else was religion. And he describes that in verses 2 to 6. It's funny, because when Paul talks about his past, it's very different to the way that we often think someone should talk about their past. I remember as a child, I would sometimes hear older Christians give their testimony. They'd talk about how they came to faith in Jesus. And maybe the strange thing was when someone gave their testimony, what I wanted to hear was just how bad they'd been before coming to Christ. The more sin they could pack into their past, the better for me. I wanted to hear about sex, about drugs, about alcohol. I wanted a dramatic story. Just how bad were you before 
you became a Christian. But see what Paul does. He turns that on his head. He doesn't say about how bad he was. He actually tells the Philippians how good he was before meeting Christ. How devout and religious he was. Because Paul is convinced it was that very goodness, that very religion, that proved to be a barrier to him finding joy in Jesus. See, before meeting Christ, Paul had lived his life on the basis of his religious credentials as a good Jew. And and he's clear here, they were impressive credentials. Verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. See, Paul, he can call himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He didn't just belong to any old tribe. He belonged to Benjamin. That was like the smallest, most exclusive tribe you could belong to. Paul was a Pharisee. He could call himself faultless in the eyes of his contemporaries. And make no mistake, Paul says, I was good at religion. I was good at being good. And you might ask, well, where's the harm in that? It kept Paul off the streets. It made him happy. He exhibited amazing self-control, self-discipline. Why is it in verses 2 to 3 of this chapter, Paul is so scathing and even vicious in his criticisms of people who promote religion as a way of knowing the living God? Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. See, where's the harm in religion? Where's the harm in trying to be good? Well, in verse 7 and following, Paul makes himself clear on that. Religious observance is damaging because it tells us we don't need Jesus Christ. Religion is dangerous because it isn't Jesus Christ. And Paul's urgency, his violent language concerning religion, stems from another conviction of his. That religion is a snare to every single one of us. And again, you might not think that's you. You might not think that you're attracted to religion or religious observance this morning. Quite the opposite, in fact. You want to be free of all that. But but Paul's convinced there is a pull towards religion in every single human heart, no matter how secular someone may feel. Because religion tells us some very attractive things that we want to hear. Because religion says, life is all about you and what you do. And Paul says his past, his achievements in Judaism were everything to him. And similarly, every single one of us is attracted to the idea of being the masters of our destiny. Religion flatters our pride. It may have a Christian veneer, but for many of us, I suspect, that we often relate to God, not on the basis of Jesus and what he has done, but on the basis of us and what we do. How often... I pray and read the Bible. What church I go to. 
what books I read, what Christian conferences I attend, what spiritual experiences I've had in the past or continue to have today. See, if you rely on those things, as again I suspect we all do at different times, in Paul's saying you're missing the point of the gospel and you are failing to rejoice in Christ. See, religion is far more seductive than we first think it is because it flatters our pride. It tells us we're in control. It tells us we're the ones who dictate the direction of our lives. And so on that level, religion actually appeals to even deeply secular people. Even an atheist can be religious in his mindset, according to Paul. Because they think, well, life's all about me, isn't it? It's all about what I do, what I get out of it, what I earn. Religion is a snare, Paul says. And he also reminds us that religion tells us you can control God. And again, that is something deeply attractive to all of us. As long as Paul kept on pursuing legalistic righteousness, he had God under control. He didn't have to listen to God as long as he kept doing the things that he thought would keep God happy. So you can almost liken Paul to, to a husband who turns up at the right time at home every night. And he helps to pay the bills. And he does all jobs around the house. And he even helps out with the kids. But in reality, he is using all those tasks to avoid a real and honest relationship with his wife. Actually, the good things he's doing are being used by him to keep his wife at arm's length. He doesn't want a relationship with her. He wants to keep her happy so he can do his own thing. Religion says you can control God. For the atheist, that means you just dismiss God. For the agnostic, that means you say, well, God's not that important whether he's around or not. For the Christian, that means that as long as you can keep God happy with what you do, you can avoid listening to him. And you can avoid really engaging with him. I wonder how many of us here find ourselves falling into that snare of religion in our relationship with God. Without wanting to go into any detail, I see myself in Paul here in recent times. How many of us relate to God on the basis of religion rather than on Christ? But Paul doesn't warn us about the snare of religion to make us feel bad about ourselves. He wants us to see the foolishness of religion, of believing that life is all about us or that we can control God, but only to prepare us for the better music God wants us to hear. Only to show us where true joy and satisfaction can be found. Verses 7 to 8. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake 
I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. See, Paul's not interested in nostalgia here. In saying, well, that was my past, but I was good at it, wasn't I? So he says, it is rubbish. Because that music is not worth comparing with knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it's even in that title, Christ Jesus, my Lord, that the music for Paul starts. Because those two names convey the dual nature of his Lord. Christ, he is divine, the anointed Son of God. Jesus, he is human and he shares in our humanity. And Paul says that is why he's worth rejoicing in. You see, the Lord Jesus, he is our creator, but he's also our brother. He is eternal. But he also knows what it is like to be a child, a teenager, an adult. To age and to see the people around him age. Jesus is holy. And he knows what it is like to be tempted into sin. He is all powerful and he surrendered that power to go to his death on a cross. He has defeated death. He is alive forever and ever. And Jesus knows what it means to mourn at the graveside of a loved one. Jesus is fully God and fully human. And Paul rejoices in that. Paul praises him for that. Because only a Lord like that is actually worthy of rejoicing in. And worshipping. And in verse 8, Paul calls this Christ Jesus my Lord. He doesn't just admire Jesus from afar, he's not just a fan of Jesus. No, he says, This Jesus, he's my Lord. He's taken hold of me. I belong to him, and he is mine. And that's true for every Christian sitting here this morning. Jesus isn't just looking for us to admire him from afar. He's looking for us. He wants us to say, you are my Lord. I'm going to follow you and find my joy in you. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then Paul finishes this section listing two of the central gifts Christ gives to every believer. Christ's gift of righteousness and Christ's gift of relationship. And he binds those two so closely together that they cannot be separated from each other. The first of them, righteousness he deals with in verses 8 to 9. Let me read that for us. Paul says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. 
See, in Paul's past, he had convinced himself that he was faultless according to the law. But in reality, he wasn't. Because legalistic righteousness is terrifyingly fragile. One slip up, one mistake, and it's gone. But the righteousness that Christ gives to every believer is totally different, Paul says. It comes from God and is by faith. It depends on God's willingness to give it to everyone who trusts in Jesus. And it depends on Christ's righteousness. See, Jesus fully obeyed the law and was without sin in his life on earth. And he gives that righteousness, that perfect obedience to every man, woman and child who trusts in him. See, Christ's gift of righteousness provides every Christian here this morning with an unshakable foundation in your relationship with God. If you're a Christian here this morning, you need to hear that. You will never be more righteous in God's sight than you are today. You will never be more righteous in God's sight than Jesus has already made you today. You are completely accepted by God on the basis of what Christ has done. He will finally declare you righteous on the last day. But you are righteous now in God's sight. And just think about that for a moment. Just look into your heart and think over the past week. Good times and bad times. The things you said and did. The things you didn't say and didn't do. And each one of us knows at bottom that if it was down to us, none of us will be called righteous. But in Christ, that is what you are. Christ's gift of righteousness is the solid bedrock of a Christian's relationship with God and of their joy in the Lord. I am righteous in God's sight, not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it, because Christ deserves it, because Christ has earned it, and he gives it to me freely. You will never be more righteous in God's sight than you are today. Paul rejoices in that. And flowing out of that gift of righteousness, Paul celebrates Christ's gift of relationship. And again, we need to hold those two together. And you will never be more righteous in God's sight than you are today. That is a given, a gift of God. But actually, you can grow in your love and knowledge of Christ as your life goes on. See, when Christ makes Paul righteous here, Paul doesn't simply just wait around for heaven. Though Paul wants more of Christ. He wants to grow in his understanding of who his Lord is. Verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul's sharing a glorious truth about the Christian life here. 
Jesus doesn't stop at declaring us righteous. As glorious as that would be, as, as glorious that would be that he did stop, that's all we need in one sense. But actually Jesus wants to give us more. He declares us righteous, then he wants us to grow in our knowledge of him and our knowledge of his righteousness in his grace towards us. Your righteousness does not change. But your relationship with Christ is capable of growth and deepening and being enriched as you see him more clearly. Paul says we can each know more of the power of his resurrection, of the, of the power that raised Jesus from the dead and that power that he brings to bear in our lives to change us into his likeness. And so often we fall into that, that despair that I will never change. My, my heart is just too set in its ways. My behavior, my life, I am stuck with who I am. But Jesus' resurrection power transformed him from a lifeless corpse to the risen and ascended king. And that same power is at work in everyone who trusts in Jesus. We can be changed because of his power. And another part of that relationship growing will include the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. We've, we've dealt with that already in this letter. This is the part I always want to bypass, but Paul's convinced here. We cannot know Christ without sharing somehow in his sufferings. And again, it's amazing. Paul insists on holding two things about the Christian life together that we would separate. The Christian life is one of joy and the Christian life will involve suffering. Suffering comes to each and every one of us, Paul says, but it is never meaningless. It is always part of Christ showing us more of himself, showing us more of what he suffered to make us righteous, to make us accepted by him. Suffering is still painful today, but it has a purpose, Paul says. He doesn't say it lightly. He has experienced suffering. He will go on in his life to experience suffering. But he urges us to see it as a vital part of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he also urges us to see that it will not last forever. Verse 11 says, the goal is the resurrection from the dead. The goal is an end to suffering, the defeat of sin and death, and that final full knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord. I want to know Christ, Paul says. That is the desire that drove him onwards. And you may feel a long way off from that desire today. You may feel, well, do I really want to know Christ? Surely there are other things I want to know. Surely there are other pieces of music attracting me this morning. But if you're trusting in Christ, you share with Paul in Christ's gift of righteousness and relationship, and you can also take heart from Paul's hope for the future. 
in verses 12 to 14. If you want to look at those now. Because on one level, those verses, they're, they're a necessary admission of Paul's. They're saying that in writing about knowing Christ, in finding joy in Christ, he's actually writing about something he has not yet attained to himself. And that's a huge encouragement, for me at least. Paul is not there yet. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect. He's writing about things he wants to know, not things he knows already. But alongside that confession, there is immense hope for the future. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. See, that is the Christian life, Paul says. Forget what is behind. Christ has made you righteous. Strain towards what is ahead. Because for every Christian this morning, there is more of Christ to know. There is more grace to experience. There are greater depths of his compassion to plumb. There is greater power available to us to help us persevere. There is greater glory greater beauty in his face for us to see and rejoice in. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. It is a safeguard for you. It will protect you from worshipping false gods, from worshipping things that just will damage us and lead us to emptiness and death. Rejoice that Christ has made you righteous and that Christ wants to know you and wants you to know him in a richer way than you do this morning. See, Jesus Christ has a better music for us. It is a music of glory and of grace. And he is calling us onwards. He has taken hold of us and he invites us to take hold of of him to know him to rejoice in him and to find life in him rejoice in the Lord it is a safeguard for you